Has anyone noticed that the mind is difficult to train? <laughs> From a certain perspective, it doesn't seem like we're asking that much of ourselves to be present, to pay attention. It seems like it should be easy, but so often it isn't. Just the simple task of paying attention to the breath can be a real challenge. <clears throat> the Buddha gave an example to illustrate the difficulty of training the mind. He said we should imagine ourselves surrounded by a thousand enemies and somehow we manage through incredible strength <clears throat> and perseverance to keep them at bay. Then imagine doing that a thousand times. He said that is easier than coming to a complete understanding or freedom of mind. So give yourselves a big perspective. <clears throat> and yet, the Buddha also said that the mind is clear, lucid, unobstructed, that its nature is to know whatever's arising, and that it's only because of visiting forces that we suffer. Tonight I'll be talking about two of the visitors that distract us from this clear and lucid presence. Desire and its opposite expression, aversion. The great benefit of meditation practice is that it allows us to take a really close look at these forces in the mind and heart. In seeing them, in understanding them, <clears throat> they lose their power to govern our actions. And as we become more aware of ourselves in this way, we're that much more understanding of others. Because Although our stories are all different, these forces in the mind are the same in each of us. <clears throat> I just want to check on the sound. Is it okay? It feels a little loud up here. <laughs> it's all right? Okay. <clears throat> Desire itself is not necessarily unwholesome. It can mean the simple motivation to do something, the simple motivation to satisfy our basic needs for food and shelter. There is also the desire for freedom. Perhaps that's why you're here. The Buddha called this one wholesome desire. <clears throat> and I often think that at the heart of all craving is that one wholesome desire to be satisfied, to be at peace, really to know the end of desire. It said that shortly after he was awakened, the Buddha saw this very thing, that we all want to be happy, but that we continually look in all the wrong places, and that it was seeing this that inspired him to teach. Sometimes I wonder if we could only remember that underlying wholesome 
desire for freedom on a more regular basis, it might help us loosen our grip on all of the fleeting pleasures that so often we go after. This is how desire is a hindrance to seeing clearly when it's misdirected to sense pleasures, pleasant tastes, pleasant sounds, sensations, experiences. Trying to hold on to what is pleasant, that attachment, that clinging, Sometimes in our lives, certainly I see this in mine, desire manifests as the if-only mind. If only we had something, more time, more money, more satisfying job, better relationships, an improvement of our health, then we would be happy when really our happiness does not depend on any of those conditions, ultimately. But we do get attached. And we get attached to certain states in our meditation practice. Calm, peace, clarity of mind, perhaps a brightness of energy. This is a really common trap in practice because it's still attachment. And it still leads to suffering if we try to hold on to any of those pleasant states because none of them are permanent. One of the unfortunate characteristics of desire is that it's endless. We satisfy one desire and another takes its place. It's the nature of desire. In a secluded environment like this one, desires can get pretty subtle. Maybe just the urge to look around as we do walking meditation or the drawing of the attention to the voices of the cooks in the kitchen. Maybe checking out each other. Anything. When cravings visiting, just about anything will do. And if there's nothing externally to go after, we create some internal situations, such as thinking, planning, remembering, fantasizing. Desire leads to the thought and the behaviors that are based on this thought, that if we string enough pleasant experiences together, we'll be happy. And we work so hard to do that, both outside in our lives and here in meditation. But it isn't so. It doesn't work. The nature of desire is to want. It's insatiable. So how do we work with it in our practice? It's not so useful to try to suppress it, nor is it so useful to act it out. But it is essential to come to know it, to understand it, to see its effect, to see the ways that it arises 
and how it might be abandoned. This is true with any difficult state that's arising. Any of the hindrances, for example, when they arise, they are the place of practice. They are what's true in that moment. So can we make it the object of mindfulness? Feel it, know it, perhaps name it. What happens when we really pay attention to it? We see that it changes, it's impermanent. And we see the selfless nature. It's not who we are. It's born out of conditions, It arises, it passes. These are important insights. When we see it clearly, we're not lost in it. The antidote to grasping is one-pointedness or steadiness of mind. The nature of desire is to jump from one thing to another as we look for more and more pleasurable experience. Meditation provides a way to stop, which doesn't mean that we need to make desire disappear. But we see it clearly. We notice the desire as it arises. We notice the way that it manifests in our bodies or minds. And we learn over time not to be so swayed by it. Sometimes it can feel as though there are waves of desire sort of crashing over us. But we can sit steady and still like a mountain in a storm. Craving is the source of our suffering. It's essential that we come to know it. In the teachings, there's three types of craving that are talked about. Craving for experience, so sense pleasures. Craving for continued existence. And this is when we're longing for something else, something that can only take place in the future. Craving non-existence, the desire to get rid of something, wanting something to end, even if it's just this moment that we're not liking. Ajahn Sumedho describes this, I think, really uh, accurately, and there's a kind of, I find a kind of humor in it. I'm not sure if you will. I want to read you this passage of his description of these three kinds of desires. We can see all three kinds of desire in our everyday life. If you are bored, you seek something to eat, or you watch television, drink something, or find somebody to talk to. These are all the desire for pleasure through the senses. But after a while, you become bored with sensory pleasure. So maybe you dedicate your life to becoming a famous writer, or a good cook, or an enlightened being. These are all the desire to become. When you're tired of sensory pleasures and becoming someone, you just want to annihilate yourself. Sleeping a lot is a kind of indulgence in this the desire to get rid of, the desire for oblivion. But as soon as you wake up, you have to start becoming something or seeking some kind of sensory experience again. So you go eat something, smoke something, drink something, watch something, read something, think about something, until you get so worn out with it all that you go and annihilate yourself again. If you have an obsession or fear or anger, you have the desire to get rid of it, don't you? I have a bad temper. I want to get rid of it. Whenever you feel anger, jealousy, 
fear, and so forth arising in you, you try to annihilate them. That's also the desire to get rid of some mental condition that you don't like. I never really thought about sleeping as annihilating myself, (laughs) but I think there's something to it. Whenever we are longing for something else or resisting what is, we suffer. It's dukkha. The relief from dukkha is the abandonment of craving. We learn to abandon craving by being with what is, the pleasant and the unpleasant. In doing that, we begin to taste a certain calm, the peace of not being dragged around by our desires. A friend told me a story once about something that happened to her, and in particular her experience of the grasping mind. She was preparing to move into a new staff space next door at the retreat center. And she was thinking about how to improve upon the space. So she remembered that she had some silk sarongs that she had kept in storage where she used to live, which happened to be halfway around the world. And she had these at her mother's house there. So she thought that these would be really nice hanging on the walls of her new staff room. So one evening she phoned her mother and asked her if she could please send these sarongs to her. But her mother said that she didn't have them. They weren't at her house and that they must be among some of my friend's things that she had left with other people, with some of her friends. And my friend got pretty upset about this. And she said, she responded quite strongly, no, she hadn't left those with other people, her friends. And so why weren't they there? Where were they? What happened to them? And she felt really angry and frustrated and argumentative with her mother. But she needed to hang up because the Dharma talk was about to start and she wanted to go to it. But her mother kept talking. So she kept interrupting her and cutting her off, more and more frustrated. And eventually she ended the conversation and hung up. She went to the talk really angry and unsettled. During the talk, she began to settle down, calm down, and actually hear what was being talked about, which was letting go. So finally, it dawned on her that this incredible state of agitation and suffering that she was in was all because she was clinging to these silk sarongs that she actually hadn't seen or had in her possession for years. By the end of the talk, she completely let go of having them of even caring where they were. And she decided to call her mother back to apologize for her reactivity and to tell her that she loved her, something she'd forgotten to do in the earlier phone call. So she called her back and she said that she'd felt badly about how the last conversation had gone and she wanted to apologize and never mind about the sarongs. Her mother said, Oh, well, only a short while ago, I remembered where they were, and I found them. Seemingly, at about the same time, my friend was sitting in the hall and completely letting go. Occasionally, it happens this way, that when we finally let go is when we get what we need, what we've been looking for. But we can't 
let go with this as a goal because then it's not really letting go. But there's a little bit more to the story. <clears throat> Since the sarongs were, were found, my friend asked that they be sent. And then she thought, well, she better ask her mother to insure them because she felt a little nervous about losing them in the mail. And her mother kind of resisted this, and it felt complicated for her. And my friend was really insistent and really concerned about their safe passage. And then she noticed she was completely right back in the grasping again. And she was shocked to see how quickly it shifted from having let go to clinging. One more time. <clears throat> My friend's story uh, reminded me of the simile in the teachings that you're probably familiar with describing desire, where we imagine a pond of clear water and then sense desire is like the water becoming colored with pretty dyes. Makes me think of the sarongs, the pretty dyes. We become entranced by the beauty of the color, and we're then unable to penetrate to the depths of the pond. Our minds are like that clear pond. So often we become distracted or entranced by some appealing sight or sound or thought or feeling, and we lose our ability to see with any depth or clarity. This is from the poet Kabir, who said, I said to this wanting creature inside me, do you believe there is some other place that will make the soul less thirsty? In that great absence, you will find nothing. What we seek is here already. Be strong then and enter into your own body. There you have a solid place for your feet. Kabir says this, just throw away all thoughts of imaginary things and stand firm in that which you are. It's an interesting proposition. Throw away all thoughts of imaginary things. Stand firm in what's true. <laughs> Sometimes when I notice the energy of desire in my meditation practice, I look to see what is it that's happening now that's not enough? It's a question I ask myself, and it brings me back, at least for a while. This is a really short poem by David White called Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath, if not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to the life we have refused again and again, until now, until now. Aversion is, in a way, the very opposite of desire. Rather than clinging, we're resisting. But in another way, it's an expression of desire. The desire to be rid of something, some aspect of our experience, 
In the pond simile, aversion is like boiling water. It's very turbulent and we can't see to the bottom because things are so stirred up. So the turbulence of aversion in our minds, in our hearts, is an obstacle to seeing clearly, to understanding. The outward manifestations of this turbulence are irritation, annoyance, anger, rage. When aversion is present, we want to get rid of whatever is happening that we don't like. Maybe it's a knee pain, maybe a difficult emotion, maybe aversion itself. I remember going to an interview once and the words that came out of my mouth when I sat down were, I hate aversion. (laughs) And I didn't really see what I was doing before I said it and the person that I was reporting to cracked up. (laughs) That's being caught in it. Adding layer after layer. Aversion also manifests inwardly as fear, depression, guilt, or even boredom. Often it comes up as a judgment about ourselves, about others, about the food, the weather, the Dharma talk, whatever. These are all states of resistance and it's very difficult to continue to practice if we're lost in them. The key strategy in working with these states of aversion is recognition. Can we be with it with mindfulness rather than acting it out, rather than indulging it? Can we let go? It's really helpful to notice the feeling, tone of our experience. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? When I first started giving Dharma talks some years ago, a lot of fear would arise when I would come and sit down in front of a hundred people before starting to talk. And I remember the really pivotal point for me in that shifting was when I realized the thing I was most afraid of was fear arising. And once I accepted that that was a part of my experience, there became a lot more space, a lot more ease. I wasn't adding aversion to something that was unpleasant already for me. So the cycle of any of these states, whether it's fear, irritation, resistance, can be broken, can be interrupted by being aware, being mindful of it. And again, what do we see when we really pay attention to any of these expressions of aversion? They're changing. They're not constant. They're not I. They're born out of conditions. They pass. We can survive them. Aversion is transformed by interest and the happiness that comes from a sustained attention. Also, when we are able to really look, to get close to the experience of anger, we see what it's made up of. Sometimes there are a lot of different components 
There might be sadness underneath or fear. Paying attention to the sensations as they're experienced in the body when anger is present is a good way to unhook from the storyline and to stay grounded, to stay present with the experience. So we recognize that it's there. We bring mindfulness to it. And we see its changing nature, its lack of solidity. We see the suffering in holding on to it. And we learn to let go. A couple of years back, I was taking a trip. And I was in an airport. Uh, And I got there early, and so I'd already gone through security, I was at the gate, but I was so early, I had time to take a walk. So I went off to a card shop to buy a card and write it out and send it to a friend. When I got back to the gate and sat down, I was waiting, I was really relaxed, but it started to seem like we should be boarding based on the time. So I asked the guy sitting next to me if they'd made any boarding announcements yet, and he said they had already boarded. And he was waiting for the next flight. The plane, my plane, was still out there, outside the window. I could see it. Still connected to the walkway, but they had closed the door. I went into a panic. It was so frustrating to have been there with plenty of time and to still be able to see the plane, the object of my desire, and not be able to get on it. There was now a long line at the desk of people checking in for the next flight. So I managed to squeeze in front of these people who were just standing there politely and talked to the people at the desk, telling them that I needed to get on that plane, that one right there. They said, impossible. And would I please get in line to make other arrangements? So I went to the back of this long line, still resisting totally the truth of the fact that I had missed my flight, somehow thinking that since I could see the plane, I should be able to get on it. I was really agitated. I was resisting the truth of the matter. Things had changed. I was trying to find a way out of it by holding on to the idea of getting onto that plane when suddenly, thankfully, mindfulness dawned in a moment. And I allowed myself to just stand there in that line and feel the agitation. And in that moment, I could see the suffering that I was creating for myself in resisting what was true. I let go. I came back to the present moment. And once I let go of that idea that I had to be on that plane, I was just standing in a line at an airport, waiting to make arrangements, just like I had many other times, and it was fine. It wasn't really a problem. There was nothing wrong with the moment when I stopped fighting it, resisting it. Just standing, aware of the sounds, the people around me, It turned out that there was another flight in only an hour, and I did manage to get on that one, on standby. The other thing that had me really upset and worried was that I always book an aisle seat. I hate sitting in the middle. (laughs) And I figured on standby, I would be in a middle seat if I got on the plane at all. And it was true. I did get a middle seat, 
And I had been worried about it. You know, I'd let go of one thing, getting on that other plane, but I hadn't let go of getting stuck in the middle, my aversion to getting stuck in the middle seat. But I did. I was in the middle, and I, I had two young men <clears throat> on either side of me, one really a boy and one a teenager. And it was maybe the sweetest flight in terms of connection with the people near me that I'd ever been on. The boy was on his very first solo flight, and he was really excited and happy about it. And he was into sharing that. And the other was a high school kid on his way to Japan to do a semester abroad. And he was also really open and interesting. It ended up feeling like a privilege to have been on that flight, in that seat. <laughs> so again, it's really helpful to notice that quality of our experience, the unpleasantness that I was feeling when I was in complete resistance and anger about having not being able to get on that first plane. Noticing that, that I was suffering, helped me to begin to shift out of it. Noticing when things are unpleasant, we have less of a chance of getting lost in the reaction to it. But sometimes we don't. We don't notice until after the fact, like I did, until after we're already in a state of aversion to something. Once on a three-month retreat that I was sitting next door, this happened to me in such a strong way that I don't think I'll ever forget it. I was accustomed to taking a walk at tea time up a particular hill right near the meditation center, and no one else was ever out there. That was part of what I liked about that particular walk, was I could just be alone outdoors on this hill. And on one particular day, there must have been something brewing inside of me already that I wasn't really aware of yet. Because I was, I do remember that I was aware that I needed that walk for whatever reason. I really wanted that walk. I was attached to that walk. And when I opened the front door of the meditation center, to step outside and go for that walk, a friend, a good friend, <laughs> who was also on the retreat, was right in front of me, headed in the same direction. And I knew immediately he was going to go to my walking spot. <laughs> so I determined to get there before he did. <laughs> And there's a couple ways you can get there. Like you can go out the driveway and onto the road and then up the road, the hill. Or you can sort of hightail it through the parking lot and jump over onto the road at a different point from a path. <laughs> so the aversion was already there. I couldn't bear to have him in my spot when I got there. But I didn't even know it yet. I just knew he was headed to my spot and I was going to beat him to it. So I did my best, but when I came out of the path and onto the road, he had just turned ahead of me and was innocently, you know, mindfully probably, walking up the road. I was furious. It was amazing. It was a moment, unfortunately more than one moment, of pure rage. I actually hated him in that moment for walking up that road. In my mind, I was screaming profanities at him as he completely innocently was walking up the road. Thankfully, he knew nothing of this. It was all inside. 
it's shocking, really, what that energy of aversion is capable of. It was so strong, I actually just stopped. It stopped me in my tracks. And I remember I squatted down on the side of the road and in a way kind of just died into it, the pain of it. I just felt it. It was total dukkha. And then it passed. It was gone. I think what happened is I was having some kind of aversion already that day. It was a part of my experience, but I hadn't yet noticed it. I wasn't mindful of it. In fact, I was trying to escape from it or soothe myself by having that perfect walk. And when that walk became unavailable to me, the aversion came blasting out full force. And only then did I wake up and pay attention to it. It was a powerful lesson in terms of seeing, A, that I was capable of that kind of rage. Prior to that, I always thought, I'm not an angry person. (laughs) So it was humbling. And B, there were ripples from it that were actually very beneficial, oddly enough. What happened was there was a deep opening of compassion for people who do spend a lot of time living with aversion. I felt I knew for the first time, really, what that must be like. And the other thing that happened was a total surrender to the practice, a kind of reaffirmation of my commitment to do whatever it takes to learn to find freedom from that kind of suffering. Last week, when I was talking about suffering, I mentioned that opening to suffering has the added benefit of opening us to life. And I wanted to share this little passage from Aiken Roshi, who um, was dealing with uh, cancer, I believe, Anyway, he wrote, the realization I experienced years ago and subsequent glimmers of understanding were, in effect, within a personal container that rested on a strata of deep self-doubt. The shock of massive doses of chemotherapy drugs has been to break up that strata. All my doubts have dropped away. At 80 years old, I am at last liberated from the resistance I have long felt to other people and to the outside world in general. Every day is a jewel. Every jewel is different. Every act Every thought, every encounter is new and precious. I read the words of the old masters and laugh and laugh. What hilariously funny fellows they were. I remember the words and the kindness of all my teachers and weep with gratitude. I listen to the music of Bach and Mozart and Haydn and thrill at the gorgeous sound. The thrush sings in the early morning in my heart. And then at the end of this passage, uh, a student says, 
you've changed since chemotherapy. And Roshi says, ha, I think everyone should practice Zazen their whole life and then have chemotherapy. Desire and aversion are powerful teachers. Working with them takes courage, first in facing them, and then in the letting go. It reminds me a little bit of someone with an addiction, even knowing that the habit is harmful. It's extremely difficult to put it down. That's the nature of addiction. But when we're most caught up in something painful and we're actually able to recognize that and let go, it's a very powerful moment of practicing freedom. There are lots of ways to practice letting go. And it's such a rewarding practice because it really eases suffering. Currently, I like to practice in my role as a stepmother to a pretty unhappy teenager. There are so many opportunities. Letting go of my reactions to his unfriendliness allows me to show up and be friendly and kind myself. Letting go of self-image, how I would like to be perceived as a wise, caring, compassionate adult, perhaps, when, in fact, How I am being perceived is much more as one of the main sources for his unhappiness. And there are times, there have been times, when letting go of that self-image, that way that I'd like to be perceived, has opened me to a lot of acceptance and compassion where I can actually feel fine about being in that role for him. If in this time of struggle and confusion, he needs someone to blame right now, why not me? It's a really different way of being than hurt and defended and holding on to a some image, some way that I'd like to be perceived. In relationship with another or with some aspect of experience, whenever there's enough mindfulness to be aware of the fact that I've gotten angry or defensive or self-righteous, and to notice the pain inherent in that state, I practice letting go. Sometimes it's quite a dramatic shift. Other times, not so much. But it's a really worthwhile practice. Ajahn Chah said, Our defilements are like fertilizer for our practice. It's the same as taking filthy stuff like chicken manure and buffalo dung to fertilize our fruit trees so that the fruit will be sweet and abundant. In suffering, there is happiness. In confusion, there is calm. Can we hold that as a possibility for ourselves? That 
whatever difficulties or hindrances come up as we practice, that they're all fertilizer. rather than resisting them, fighting with them, can we till them in, grow from them, grow out of them? I'd like to close by extending my wishes that the fruit of your practice be well fertilized and abundant and sweet. Let's sit together for a couple minutes. Chant the sharing of blessings. Mm-hmm.